Man, I feel like if I could give a message to this community, it would just be, if you're not at Anderson Hills on Sunday mornings right now, you are missing out. And, and man, I don't say that to pump myself up or to pump anybody up on stage up or, or whatever. I just say that to pump up the Spirit of God. Like, I just feel like something's different about this place, you know? Like, I mean, six and a half years I've been on staff here and serving here and Man, just in the last six months or so, like, I can just feel something, you know? Like, I, maybe it's just me, you know? Maybe it's just, it's just my drawing closer to him, but something good. I mean, you know, like, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Yeah. Like, I'm tasting it, and I'm seeing it, and I'm excited about it, and I hope you are, too. Good morning. My name's Matt Howe, one of the pastors here, and uh, hello to those of you who may be watching us online as well. Excited that uh, you're with us, too. And we are continuing to live on in this series of Romans. I got to tell you, I jumped ahead this morning uh, in some quiet time and went ahead and read the first two chapters of Joshua. And uh, it's going to be good too, right? So when Romans is over, don't think that, you know, that's your time to start, you know, missing. You got to be here because we're going to jump right back old school. We're going to go Old Testament. And it's going to be just as life-giving and life-breathing as, as Romans has been. But today we're in Romans chapter 13. Originally it was scheduled to be 13 and 14. And uh, as we pastors kind of put our heads together and wrestled a little bit, we decided, you know what? 13 deserves its own chapter. You know? It does. So we're giving it its, its own day. All right? We're giving it its own time, its own highlight. But uh, week seven now of an eight-week series, pretty exciting. Fall's just rolling along, although as Mark alluded this morning, it feels like it's still summer, right? It's not. Time's going to be changing back here pretty soon, I think, right? Got to fall back a little bit, so that'll be... That'll be a reminder that winter's coming. Um, so Paul writes Romans, right? And, and we've said the last several weeks, Paul writes Romans to a group of, of believers in Rome who had really never had any apostolic teaching. Um, so he's kind of writing them just to give them some really sound doctrine. And the one thing that Paul really wants them to know, and, and what he writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then also to the Gentile. And so Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter to the church at Rome was to teach them the great truths of the gospel of grace to believers who had just never really heard about it. I mean, this is a gospel of grace. And so Paul spends the majority of, of chapters 1 and 2 kind of presenting the sinfulness uh, of man, right? And then after all the bad news, he, in chapters 3 through 5, he kind of gives the good news, right? That God brings salvation to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, and that that uh, makes them right with God. And then in, in chapters uh, 6 and 7, Paul addresses this struggle that we have kind of with our sin nature, Right? And says, you know what? You don't have any obligation to your sin nature. You don't have to live as a, as a slave to that, right? Um, the church is encouraged by Paul to, to live by the Spirit and to bear fruit based on their new identity in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 8, Paul reminds the believers in Rome that there is really no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we are, that we are more than conquerors, and that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul reminds the Romans that salvation really is, is as close to them as their own lips and heart, that by confessing with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. 
And then there's sort of this shift, as we saw last week in chapter 12, where Paul moves from kind of all this deep doctrinal reflection to advice on just Christian behavior. Like in light of all these things that God has done in chapters 1 through 11, here is really how you are to live, right? And so in chapter 12, Paul urges the believers in Rome to stop conforming to the pattern of the world and to allow God to transform them by changing the way they think. And so this morning we've arrived at at chapter 13. And we're going to take a closer look at chapter 13 because in chapter 13, Paul gives further instruction on how to live this Christ-like life. Uh, Towards the end of the message, we're going to talk about how Paul encourages the believers to clothe themselves with Christ Jesus. Specifically, Paul addresses how the believers in Rome should act toward their secular government. That's right, we're going to go there today. Towards other people and ultimately towards God. In this chapter, Paul urges the believers in Rome to to behave in ways that would prevent them from attracting negative attention from from pagans or or from the authorities. Paul wants to make sure that that interpersonal behavior in the church gatherings was such that it it would promote unity and not division. And so we pick it up, chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, everyone must submit himself... I mean, we could really just stop right there, right? Because this is, this is troublesome. This is hard. In fact, I would dare to say that most of the troubles that we experience, we experience because we are unwilling to submit or subject, right? Maybe that's a better word. Maybe you like that better. That rolls off the tongue better. I mean, submission doesn't look like hands in the pockets kind of pulling back, right? What does submission look like? Man, it looks like wide open ready for the sucker punch, right? Like, I'm willing, God. And Paul says, everyone must submit or subject himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Hmm. What does Paul mean when he says in verse 1, There is no authority except that which God has established. That's a bit confusing to me as I read that. One of the foundational doctrines of our Christian faith is is God's sovereignty, right? What does that mean, God's sovereignty? That means that God is both the creator and the sustainer of the universe, This means that God is the supreme authority, 
and that everything on earth is under him. Does this mean that all governing authorities are in their positions because God has placed them there? Well, no, not exactly. I mean, another foundational doctrine of our Christian faith is what we call human free will, right? And so in spite of God's sovereignty, humans are still granted the right to choose. And let's be honest, sometimes we choose right, sometimes we choose wrong, sometimes the choices are made for us. And this was certainly the case in Rome, right? The choice had been made for the people in Rome. I mean, the believers there didn't have any say in who was their governing authority. The government of Rome was, was tolerant of most religious expressions. However, that tolerance was limited, largely limited, to religions that were polytheistic, right? A belief in many gods. And this was a problem for Christians. It was also a problem for Jews at that time. Because in the middle of the, of the first century, Christians and Jews, they were living monotheistically. I mean, we still are today, right? They proclaimed the unpopular doctrine that there was only one God, and this created issues for them. By extension, they, they would refuse to worship the emperor. They would refuse to acknowledge that this emperor was any kind of, of deity, right? And for this reason, Christians and Jews began to experience persecution, particularly under the rule of Emperor Nero, who we believe had just begun his reign at the time that Paul was writing Romans. So why then would Paul ask the believers in Rome to submit to such ungodly authority? Surely God would not have wanted Nero in the position to persecute God's people. That doesn't make any sense. And the answer is, of course not. I mean, the Bible is, is full of God's Examples of God's people resisting religious or, or secular authorities when, when those leaders required people to violate clear biblical directives. So why here does Paul say submit? Well, to understand more fully what God is saying, one only need to glance back at chapter 12, where we were last week. In verse 18, where Paul said, If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So what Paul is really saying in Romans 13 is that regardless of who is in charge, God's expectation is that we live responsibly as citizens of the country, the state, the county, the city. I mean, apply it to today's time that we live in. Obviously, God's greatest desire is that we live holy lives. Obedience to God, that's not up for debate, right? That's a must. However, insofar as there is peace and order, we should also live in obedience to the secular governing authorities as well. Basically, Paul tells the believers in Rome to do what is right, to live responsibly, and to seek peace and order. So the question is then, how do we apply? Because we always want to apply, right? That's what you're here for. You're here for application. I could go on and on with all this doctrinal stuff, and you'd be like, shh, stop. Give me some application, right? 
So how do we apply that same teaching to our day? How do we apply that same teaching to our time, to our cultural context, right? The United States of America, very different than ancient Rome, right? I'm in the USA, we're a democracy, and I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful for my rights and my freedoms. But all of you would probably agree with me that we are living in somewhat of an unsettled political climate, right? I mean, you only need to pick up the paper, turn on the news, whatever. Anybody will tell you that we are living in an unsettled political climate. And so this is what I will say. Putting myself out there, all right? Don't be emailing me at the end of service, okay? <laughs> there is nothing wrong with being a Republican. There's nothing wrong with being a Democrat. There's nothing wrong with being an Independent. As long as you are first and foremost a follower of the Lord Jesus Paul writes in verse 7, he says, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe him taxes, then pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. I mean, listen to what Jesus had to say on that topic. He, he told a group of Pharisees this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. He said, then the Pharisees went out, laid plans to trap him in, the wor in his words. They sent their uh, disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion, right? I mean, they're like setting him up. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, having the help of the fact that he was God, knowing their evil intent, right, says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarii, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's and give to God what is God's? And the Bible says when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left and went away. Or maybe they were ashamed and darn it, right? <laughs> Both the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus are kind of saying the same thing here. And what they are saying is that we have an obligation to respect and to honor those in authority. We struggle with that a little bit. Christians struggle with that a little bit, right? We may not always agree with the people who are in authority over us. In fact, more often than not, we may actually disagree with them. But biblically speaking, we still have to respect them. I heard it said this way once, trust is earned, but respect is given. We may not always trust our leadership, and that's sad for me to say. I wish that was not the case, but it is. But we still need to respect the position. Remember, as much as it is possible, as it is according to you and your ability, live at peace. I think that Paul and Jesus would both say that there needs to be a clear separation between the secular authority and the spiritual authority. Jesus says we should give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Clearly, these are not the same thing. 
Again, our greatest responsibility is to love and to honor God. And so to this point, Paul continues in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule, and it is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So he kind of turns things a little bit, right? Like telling us, submit to these authorities, live at peace, live responsibly, And above all else, love, right? Let there be no other debt outstanding. Debt, mmm, mmm, right? I feel like that word should be added to a list of other four-letter words that people don't talk, right? (laughs) People don't sit or shouldn't sit, right? By the way, speaking of debt, we have an amazing financial peace class here led by our own Vic and Sue Black sitting over here. And I would just say that a new class started this past Thursday. And I have been told by Sue that it is not too late for you to get in there. And I will also say that financial peace is not for people who are living, just for people who are living in financial turmoil, right? That's not, that's not what it's about. It's about being good managers, good stewards of what God has given us, right? So whether you're in debt up to your eyeballs or whether, you know what, you're doing pretty well financially, but you kind of want to know how to honor Christ with your money moving forward, like, be a great class for you. Just saying, okay, for what that's worth. They didn't ask me to do that. I did that on my own. (laughs) Anywho, I love what Paul writes here. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. The continuing debt to love one another. Christians must obey the law of love, which supersedes both religious and civil laws. How easy it is for us to sometimes excuse our indifference to others merely because we have no real legal obligation to them, right? Sometimes we even justify harming them because, you know, our actions, well, technically they're legal, right? But Jesus does not leave loopholes in the law of love. Whenever love demands it, we are to go above and beyond human legal requirements, and we are to imitate the very love of God. Because there is one debt that will always remain outstanding. You see, you're never going to be able to fully repay that. Does that make sense? Think about what Jesus did for you, right? The incredible love that he showed forth. You're not going to be able to repay that. And so it's an ongoing debt that we have to now love one another. I mean, Jesus said it best in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, where he said, As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. And then finally, Paul writes in Romans 13, beginning in verse 11, he says, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Really, folks, what Paul is asking the believers in Rome to do is to live with a sense of urgency. I mean, Paul says, he says, wake up. Wake up. How many of you have ever woke up late for something and realized that you were late and your family was late and you like go into their bedrooms and you throw on the lights and you pull back the covers and open the window shades and wake up, right? We got to go. We're late, right? I think about that scene from Home Alone, you know, where they end up leaving Kevin behind. Yeah. So it's kind of that idea, right? Kevin! He's standing back there. I like it. (laughs) Wake up. The hour has come. Salvation is close. The Apostle Paul, like the other apostles at that time, probably believed and understood that the second coming of Christ was something that they were going to experience, something they were going to see in their lifetime, right? Paul writes, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. And the night that Paul is referring to is this present sort of spiritually darkened era that they were in. The day refers to the inbreaking of Jesus and the kingdom to the day of the Lord. How much does God want us to live with a sense of urgency? Concerning the day of the Lord, Jesus said, but about that hour or day, no one really knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So no one really knows how much time we have left before Jesus returns. For that matter, none of us really knows how much time we have left before we depart this earth, right? Jesus also said these words just one chapter later. He said, therefore, in light of the fact that no one knows, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. At the very least, we should be keeping watch. We should be on guard. We should be ready. When I first came to saving faith in Christ, I had this incredible sense of urgency concerning the spreading of his word. I mean, I wanted everyone that I came across to know the life and the love and the grace that was offered to them through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, there was a point in my 20s where I had a really hard time just sitting still. I mean, not literally, but metaphorically, right? I always felt that there was something else I should be doing, somewhere else I should be going, someone else I should always be talking to about the Lord. And if I'm being honest today, standing before you at age 38, I miss the zeal that I felt for the Lord in my 20s. I was sharing with our staff this week that in some ways, along the path of 16 years of ministry, I think that I kind of became a professional Christian. What do I mean by this? I mean that my faith in Christ and my relationship with him has, did, kind of in some ways, become my job. And you guys know what it's like to have a job, right? I mean, there are days you really want to go and you're really excited about what's happening. And there are other days when you just dread going to work. And that's kind of how I was relating to God. Because I was relating to God through my job as a professional Christian, right? That's what your ministers face, just so you know. And this wasn't intentional. And fortunately, over the course of the last several weeks, as I alluded 
I've kind of woken up to this harsh reality, right? And it hurt a little bit. Like, it's like, ouch. Matt, you've been a professional Christian. As Paul would say, I have kind of woken up from my spiritual slumber, right? And I will say, and I I mean this, I am genuinely excited about the things that God is doing, not only in my own heart, but here at this church. And my prayer is that many more of you will awaken from your spiritual slumbers. My prayer is that we will all awaken to the reality that we are loved by God. And that, as I said last week, we are not just saved from something, we are saved to something. I mean, Paul closes chapter 13 by challenging the believers in Rome to clothe themselves with Christ and therefore not to think about gratifying the desires of the flesh. To understand more fully what Paul is saying, one only needs to glance back at chapter 12, verse 2, which we read last week, where Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul wants the believers in Rome to allow God to transform them by changing the way they think. Paul wanted the believers in Rome to wear their faith on their sleeves. He wanted them to carry their faith with them wherever they went. It was time for them to step out of the darkness and step into the light. It was time for them to take off the ways of the flesh and to put on the ways of Christ. And the time for us at Anderson Hills and Anderson Township and Cincinnati, Ohio to do these things, I believe, is now. Paul charges the believers to clothe themselves with Christ Jesus, to live as his children in this present world. And church, it is time for us to clothe ourselves with Christ. I mean, the world needs us, right? I mean, just, just flip back through verses to the beginning of chapter 13 where Paul's saying, hey, submit to the authorities, right? And, and we're willing to admit, hey, we're in a little bit of an unstable climate right now, and there's a lot of issues going on in America. And, you know, the answer is Republican. No, the answer is Democrat. And no, the answer is Jesus Christ. And it's like, let's get there, you know? Like, let's be those people who pull off all that fleshy stuff All that stuff that's tied up into our humanity and into our flesh spirit, right? And let's put on the fullness of Jesus Christ, right? Like, it's our responsibility, guys. I don't know if you realize that or not, but when Jesus left, he looked at Peter and said, dude, you the church, right? We're the church. We're the rock. We're the ones that have to be Christ to other people. And we can't do that if we're too busy looking at ourselves and my wants, my desires, right? This consumerism that has almost ate alive the church, right? Well, I want contemporary music. No, I want traditional music. I don't like any of it. We shouldn't sing at all. It's unbiblical, right? And it's like, good gracious, get over yourself, you know? Paul encouraged the believers in Rome to consider everything they did as if doing it for the Lord. What would, man, what would that look like? What would it look like if we would consider everything we were doing as though doing it for the Lord? Man, let's just pray that way this morning. God, just help us. Help us to consider everything we do as though doing it for you, God. Every decision, every choice, every behavior, every reaction, every interaction, every conversation, Oh, God, just get all over us this morning. Get all over us. We want to be clothed in you. And this isn't like skimpy string bikini clothing. This is like full-on cloak, heavy winter bathrobe kind of clothing, right? Like, get all over us. 
God, we want our decisions and we want our choices and we want our conversations and our interactions to reflect you because you are good and you are transformative. And when people get a taste of you, when they see you, nothing will ever be the same. God, my greatest desire is to grow more intimately into relationship with you. My greatest desire is to be able to look to my left, look to my right, look in front and look behind me and see where your very presence is standing beside me. God, my greatest desire is to not go another single day without you. Father, it's not worth it. This world is so ugly. It's so broken. It's no fun sometimes, God. Eric prayed earlier for the heaviest heart in the room, and God, sometimes they are. They're just heavy. We're just heavy. God, you can make us light today. You can take those burdens. You can take that junk. God, do that now. Do a work in the life of people in this room so that we can step out of darkness and step into light and be your love and your grace and your light to people who need it. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray.